Behind the Knife, the surgery podcast. Relevant and engaging content designed to help you dominate the day. Welcome to Behind the Knife. We are very excited about a Principles of Financials series that we are starting here, and we are lucky enough to have Dr. Jason Mizell, who is a colorectal surgeon, professor of surgery, the director of business of medicine, and the program director for the transitional year program at the University of Arkansas. He also recently won the White Coat Investors 2020 Financial Educator of the Year. Welcome, Dr. Mizell, to Behind the Knife. Thank you so much for the invitation, and uh, kudos to you guys for we're doing a uh, finance lecture on a surgery podcast. So this is something that, as you guys know, is not very commonly covered. So I'm, I'm delighted that y'all are willing to, to venture out and go away from the norm a little bit. So thanks for doing that. Yeah, we, we do think this is kind of critically important as we'll get into here, um, you know, for preventing burnout and setting people up for success. And so um, today's interview is actually based on a lecture that you sent me called How to Resuscitate Your Critically Ill Finances, which is a fantastic lecture. So, Dr. Mizell, why should surgeons care about building wealth, and why are surgeons so ill-prepared to do so? Well, I mean, wealth is, you know, a funny thing, and it's it's not really a, a defined number. Um, it's really more of a concept, and really what defines wealth is when you don't have to work anymore. So, for a lot of people, that will be different amounts of money in retirement, but the end result and the goal is the same, uh, which is wealth. And the reason why we want that is not just to say we have a lot of money, but it's what, what wealth can get us. And wealth has been shown in a lot of studies to provide less stress, um, you know, because when you don't have much money, you can't have things like functional cars and, you know, you can't keep your bills on or your lights on at, at your house. And so basic needs must be met with some money. But when you get to a certain point, more money doesn't necessarily provide more happiness. Um, but as far as our job goes, when we do get to that point of wealth, it does reduce burnout. Um, it's been shown that whenever we are at a point where we are financially set, that we can start doing medicine for the reasons that we went into medicine, which is to take care of patients, to do good surgery, to cure cancer, uh, whatever it may be. And so when you go to work because you want to rather than you have to, that's a big burnout reducer. Um, but it also sets you up to be a very flexible with your schedule. You know, whenever you don't have to work, you're able to work as much or as little as you want. And if you want to take Fridays off, you take Fridays off. If you want to work half days, you work half days. Uh, you want to spend more time with your family, you spend more time with your family. Um, and it makes it to where you're a better negotiator. You know, whenever your money is set and you've got a, a good source of income, then you don't have to take low salaries or work in cities you don't care for or or be around maybe partners that aren't treating you as well as you want. And so it allows you to leave when you want and, and to negotiate contracts like you want. So it's it's about getting to where you want to be work-wise. It's about reducing burnout. And it's um, about uh, putting you up for a better negotiating position, position and financial security. So why do you think surgeons are uh, so ill-prepared um, when it comes to finances? Yeah, it's really not just surgeons. I mean, really, it's all of us in medicine for the most part. It's slowly getting a little bit better, but it's it's a problem because, you know, we go, you know, most uh, people that go to medical school have no financial training in undergraduate um, studies. So they don't get finance in undergraduate and then they go to medical school and we don't get financial education. And so we enter into this world of residency where we start making money that is has financial decisions that we have to make, but we don't get taught it. 
And then suddenly we come into large salaries uh, and we venture into a financial world that is very jargon heavy and very hard to understand and very tricky. And a lot of financial advisors don't have the same altruistic, you know, put the other person ahead of yourself kind of mindset. And so we have a big lack of knowledge when it comes to finance uh, because we've just never been educated and never had time to self-educate because we're learning how to be good surgeons. And so then we venture into a world that's it's uh, fraught with a lot of potential pitfalls and just puts us in a really bad position. So you have three principles of success and three pitfalls for failure in this lecture. Let's start by discussing your first principle of success. Love your future self. I've heard this phrase a lot. It took me a long time, sadly, until I really understood what it means. But what does it mean to pay yourself first? Yeah. So when I came up with that, you know, um, that first slide, that was my, my first, uh, in, in my points, because in my mind it's the most important. And what, what that means is loving your future self is saving for retirement. Um, and the way we do that is we pay ourselves first. So what we should do is one of the, the first things that should happen with our paycheck every month, money should be taken out, uh, to be put into a retirement account so that ultimately whenever it's time for you to retire, there is money there for you. And, and the government likes the idea of you being able to take care of yourself. And so they allow some tax breaks and um, some ways to avoid having to pay certain fees um, whenever you follow this path of retirement planning. And based on my experience, I, I see that about half of residents uh, really save for retirement. And so what that means is the other half are just spending all of their money every month. And that's a concern because what we typically say is, well, when I make X number of dollars per year, you know, 300,000 or 400 or 500, then I'll have so much money where I'll be able to start saving. But really, it's a behavioral thing. And so that's why I was saying at the beginning, we should set ourselves up to where money should be taking out at the very beginning every month, rather than paying yourself last, which means take care of all my bills, all the things I want to do each month. And if I have some money left over at the end of the month, I'll throw that in retirement. That, as you probably already know, or would assume is at the end of the month, for whatever reason, we never have any money left over because we're we're really, really good at spending and we're really terrible at saving. So if you do it at the beginning, then what you'll learn is that you actually can live on less money. It's a miracle. You know, it turns out we don't need $60,000 um, every year to, to have a, you know, a happy living. You can live on a little bit less, and that's a good behavioral thing to put in place. So, so set your account up, usually through your HR, where that money's taken out first. So for, you know, those out there in residency, junior staff, you know, how much should they be saving for retirement and where should they start? You know, if they have um, an employer, 403B or Roth IRAs, traditional IRAs, what's what, what how do we start with this? Yeah, so that's, that's great. And that's a lot of times where residents get messed up a little bit because they, you know, the ones that are starting work as we are you know, doing this podcast have just been given a massive amount of paperwork and forms to sign and all these different things. And oftentimes it just gets lost. You know, we, we are trying to get certified in Epic and ACLS and all these different things and retirement just gets pushed down. Uh, but it really should be nailed down right now whenever residents start. And what I would recommend is during residency to start saving 10% uh, of their salary in a Roth, uh, which is a um, post-tax type of, of savings so that they are able to take advantage of their low tax rates right now. And so as residents, I would say 
there's new faculty uh, and, you know, post-residency, I would say 20 percent, 20 to 25 percent of their income per month should be put in a retirement account. And once they become post-faculty or, or they become, sorry, post-residency, then that would be the time to switch over from a Roth to more of a, a traditional. And then the, the letters at the end or the numbers at the end uh, typically signify what type of plan it is. So for residents that are at state institutions like at UAMS where I am, they would get a Roth 403B because the 403B means a not-for-profit. But if they're at a, a for-profit type institution, that would be a 401k. Same concept, same type of plan, just a different set of numbers uh, for the type of plan to designate what type of employer you have. But suffice it to say, what I generally recommend is that as residents, it's a Roth. And then when you're done with training, switch over to the traditional. And that way you've got some diversification in the type of plan that you have. Do those university systems uh, have a matching 403B to any point or is that not common? It's not common for residencies. Every now and then, I, I one of our graduates uh, recently emailed me and said she was going to get like a 1.5% match, which is, is free money. And if your institution provides a match, then you definitely should give to be able to, to get that match. But most residencies do not. But a lot of academic and not-for-profit institutions, whenever you are post-training, do offer a match of various amounts. Uh, typical, I would say, is around 5%. Um, UAMS gives us 10%, so it's an excellent match. But that's a way that institutions will incentivize employees to come work there. You know, so it's it's free money, usually up to a certain point. And to continue to not contribute to retirement means not only are you not saving for your, for your future, but you're also potentially losing free money that the institution wants to give you. So it's theoretically a, a double negative, but usually only a, applied for faculty. Now, I don't want to assume anything for, you know, our listenership. I, I imagine we have people at all, you know, different uh, levels of experience and uh, edu- financial education. But you, you could just real briefly, you know, hopefully a little bit later and in the, into the second episode, we'll get into what different types of assets we should have in some of these different accounts. But um, can you just give us a, a quick, what's the difference between a Roth and a traditional? Yeah, great. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I, and I, I want the listeners to know that, you know, the stuff that I am talking about, I did not know any of this when I finished my residency. This has all just been through blogs and self-education and podcasts and books. And so you don't have to have, you know, a, a CFP or a, you know, a CPA or any MBA. None of that is necessary to learn this kind of information. It's just good, um, you know, I'd say, quote unquote, basic finance that can be self-learned. So I don't want our listeners to think that, that I know a lot of this because I've done extra training. I haven't, I just self-educated, but, but you're exactly right. So the, the Roth and the traditional, it matters particularly that the difference is when are the taxes paid on the money. So like in my situation, I'm um, after residency. So when I get my paycheck every month before any taxes are taken out, money is taken out of that account and put into my retirement account. So that's tra- the traditional method. So that money has not been taxed at all. And so right now, I don't want to pay taxes on that money because right now I'm in a high tax bracket. So I take that money, I put it in my retirement account, I buy some stocks and bonds and do all this um, pre-allocated type stuff with it, and it's just going to grow until I decide to take it out once I am retired. Once I'm retired, my taxes will be lower because I'll be making less money. 
So when I take it out then, then the government will say, hey, that money that you're taking out right now, you've never paid taxes on it. I'm like, oh, yes, I'm happy to pay taxes on it now, sir, because I'm in a lower tax bracket. So now that's what a traditional method is, as opposed to a Roth is I put the R's together. Roth is good for a resident. And so the way that works out is you get your paycheck from your employer, you pay your taxes, and then some of the money that's left over, you immediately put it in a retirement account. And that money grows. And then when you are in retirement, you get ready to take that money out. And the government says, hey, we want to tax you. And you say, actually, sir, you cannot because you I paid taxes on this money 20 years ago when I put it in or whatever. And so they say, oh, that's right. You can have that money free of free of charge. And so all that growth that has happened over the last 20 years is tax free growth. So in reality, that conversation doesn't happen. I'm just trying to make sure you understand sort of the concept of what it is. But you want now to pay taxes on money because you have a low tax rate. So that's the Roth uh, versus the traditional. So your second principle of success is to control your spending. Where do you see surgeons making the biggest mistakes here? And do you have any advice on how best to track spending? Yeah, so really, uh, this, I feel like even going back to the first point about how you, you said surgeons are typically not good wealth builders is because we really get a lot of our financial knowledge from watching our peers. And because our peers are really good at spending and not saving, we just sort of fall in line with those people. And it's very hard to, you know, to go against the Joneses when everybody's, you know, got the luxury cars and the big houses. And so what I would say is, first of all, we need to get a rein on where your spending is going. And I think most residents will be probably very surprised if they started a budget, which would be my recommendation is to start a budget through one of many different apps or just getting an Excel spreadsheet and writing how much you you know spend every month in different categories. But you'd probably be surprised at how much you're spending on alcohol and subscription services, you know, because whether it's Netflix and Apple TV or, you know, some sort of virus software or, you know, the gym or whatever, it's all these little five and 10 and $12 things that really can cut into a, a budget really quickly, uh, not to mention a you know $50 thing of bourbon or whatever. Um, so working on controlling your spending is really about seeing where all is your money going, what is really necessary, and then putting parameters around yourself in those areas so that you can put money in areas that really do matter, which as I mentioned earlier is retirement and then working on killing high interest debt. So it leads nicely into the third principle, which is kill your debt. So uh, do we have a mindset problem when it comes to debt and which debt, when it comes to killing the debt, which should we focus on first? Yeah, we, I think we really do have a mindset problem. It, it's a, it's a doctor problem. And I think that it, it's just an American problem as well is, is we just get used to debt. It's just something that is uh, almost assumed is that when you have a decent salary, uh, then you can use it to take out loans and different things. And there is definitely some benefit to leveraging money and working the system but we just get used to carrying it out for really long periods of time. And whenever we are in debt, whether that's you know the average med student's $200,000 in debt, whether it's that or whether it's whenever we actually have zero net worth, still going out and buying the luxury car or the very nice house or whatever, while we are forgetting that, oh, we still actually owe $200,000 and we really aren't making that much money. And we have actually nothing saved in retirement yet or whatever. Like it's, we are totally blind to areas of big need and our eyes are, are really wide open and excited for these new toys that 
we want and arguably deserve after years and years of delayed gratification, but not to the point where we would want to be detrimental to our future long-term plan because we, we spin, spin, spin. So the, the order in my mind in killing your debt is after the retirement is saved, the next priority is, is high interest debt. And generally, that's going to be credit cards for sure. But then secondly, it's going to be generally student loans uh, for those people that are still in federal programs like repay and things like that. So, so working on those high interest uh, moments of debt is going to be really, really critical. And we have a great episode uh, later in this series about uh, exactly how to kill your student debt. So look forward to that episode. So now let's discuss some pitfalls. The first pitfall is accumulating things, not memories. Tell us about this pitfall and can you explain the difference between depreciating and appreciating assets? Yeah, the this to me was very eye-opening when I first started uh, reading books to this this point. There's a book on how to think about money. Uh, that's the title of that one, which was really good. There's a new one, uh, The Psychology of Money. Uh, and these books began for me to really help me think, what what really is my goal of wealth? And our goal, as I mentioned earlier, you know, the, the few points there, but wealth is really about control. You know, it's really about having uh, control of your life where you can kind of do what you want when you want. And so we want to use our wealth generally to gain time because we have there's lots of studies out there that talk about how wealth and investing it in items is not near as fulfilling as investing it in things that matter to you. So for this to be effective, you have to take a step back and figure out what is really fun for me. What does matter? If I had all the money and I could retire right now, what would I do? And I think in medicine, particularly in surgery, because we dedicate so much to our field, we can quickly forget what is fun for us. And we forget about hobbies and we forget about our family. and We forget about things that we just like to do and that we're good at outside of medicine. Because surgery, as you guys know, is very demanding and it takes a lot, a lot of time. But when we're starting to begin to really get a, uh, our mind wrapped around our, our craft of surgery, we need to not forget what is our ultimate purpose. And, and as I mentioned, you know, the accumulating things on memories, what I mean by that is, is for me, every time I, so as, as we mentioned, or we're shooting through whenever we we're trying to get this episode going, I went through like three pair of headphones and I was about ready to throw them all at the door because these techie things were driving me nuts, right? But whenever recently my wife and I went on uh, the bourbon trail through Kentucky, and every time I think about that trip, my my memories grow more fond. And every time I open a bottle of bourbon that we got on that trip, I we talk about that and we think about it and we enjoy those memories so much as opposed to irritating iPhones or broken down cars or house repairs or whatever. When those things happen, doesn't matter how awesome your house is, it's still super irritating when you come home and the washing machine doesn't work or there's a leak in the pool or whatever. So the more things we have tends to be more irritating as opposed to the more we spend time with what we enjoy doing with, who we enjoy doing it with, where we want to do it, those really provide a lot of happiness and satisfaction for us. So that's that's kind of what I mean by that concept. Awesome. So another pitfall that you mentioned is uh, trying to beat the stock market. So why is this a bad idea? Isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? We're supposed to be beating the market, right? Yeah. So this, I would say, is a big, big area where doctors get 
get nailed by the financial industry. I would say one of the first areas we we get taken to the to the cleaners is oftentimes buying whole life insurance, which generally is a bad idea and probably will be discussed in other episodes or we can discuss or whatever. Um, but that's the big one that financial industry sort of preys on us. But then number two is we either think, A, because we're generally really smart people, we can probably figure out the stock market and beat it, or we give our money to people that are in the financial industry who say they can beat it. And both of those concepts have neither been consistently proven to be right over time ever. And so we you know, like to think because we're in medicine, oh, maybe if we know more about some sort of new you know, Johnson Johnson product that's coming out, that will be big. Maybe we should invest in this drug or this equipment. And it's going to be big because we see how it benefits patients. It's not consistently been shown to be true. So whether it's Tesla or whether it's Bitcoin or whether it's meme stocks, you know, like GameStop and some of those that shot way up, trying to figure out the peak and the fall of the market uh, and particularly for individual companies is impossible. Nobody can consistently do it over time. Even the, the people whose job is to figure it out can't figure it out. So the best thing to do is rather than trying to beat the stock market, just settle for what the stock market can give you and just ride the wave because there's been no 30 year period in the history of the American economy since the stock market started where if you invested at the beginning of 30-year period, where 30 years later, you would have less money than when you started. It's always one of capitalistic growth and improvement in interest rates uh, for the stock market with, as far as gains uh, to be able to capture that and get where you want in retirement. So, so trying to, to pick individual stocks is a, a losing man's game. Generally, what I would say, if, if somebody is really interested in that, I would do absolutely no more than 10% of their entire per- portfolio into trying to to do individual stuff because it you know it's white collar gambling it's kind of fun it can be and when you when you do well it's really exciting uh, but you know as Jim Cramer always says pigs get slaughtered so uh, you have to be careful about uh, being greedy and, and really wanting um, to stay in the game too long because you can lose I want to take a, a second you you brought up the whole life insurance we have a ish, uh, an episode that we talk about disability insurance extensively and we, we kind of briefly touch on term life insurance uh, I recently uh, had a financial advisor that I talked to um, who said, oh, yeah, I don't have whole life insurance. I have hybrid. It's a hybrid insurance. And, and basically, I figured out later that it was whole life insurance with a kind of different makeup. Can, and so and this is like, I mean, he knew I was a doctor and, and this was like the first thing he wanted to get me. And thankfully, I didn't end up going with this person. But can you just briefly talk about why whole life insurance is a bad deal? Yeah, so. So just to, again, to make sure people are understanding the difference. So term life insurance is where you buy a policy that covers you for a set number of years, typically 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. Those are the standard. And it's really what you're wanting there is um, whenever the term runs out. Uh, so right now I'm um, you know 44 years old. If I bought a 20 year life insurance policy at age 64, I really shouldn't need life insurance anymore because my kids will be out of my house. My house should be paid off. Um, I My kids should be through college. My debt will be gone. And so I don't really have, other than maybe a little small thing to pay for my funeral expenses, I really won't have dependents that are, that are depending on me at that point. So there's not a whole lot of reason to have life insurance for my entire life. But that's what whole life insurance is. It is you start paying a premium now, which can be anywhere from eight to 10 times per month what a term life insurance policy may be, and but you have it your entire life. Well, what typically the financial industry would say is the money that you're putting in every month 
also uh, to a small degree builds up a, a kind of an extra account. And so they'll tout it as, hey, this is not only life insurance, but it's also a way of saving money because, wow, you guys are doctors. You're going to need areas to save money because you're going to have so much money coming in. You're going to be looking for places to store it. And this life insurance policy is a great place to do that. Well, as it turns out, it's a terrible place to do that because they take a lot of very high fees out of your money. Uh, the return on the investment, you know, because you're giving a little bit of money and then they're investing that in the stock market, typically through what is called active trading, which means typically there's very high fees with that as well. There's high commissions, high fees, but they put it in is generally not good. And so there are so many better ways to do uh, the kind of estate planning uh, that a life insurance policy would be beneficial for rather than having to pay all those fees and commissions and all that. And it was actually a, an article, I think, within the last week, maybe, uh, on the White Coat Investor, where he did a side-by-side comparison of what people say whole life is good for and what the better alternative is on the right side of the call, uh, little graphic that he created. And it's excellent. And so it's a way just to basically kind of rebut every argument that the financial sector would, would put against you. But absolutely, whole life is, is uh, we always say it's much better to be sold than bought. And just to put some numbers on that for our listeners, and, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I would say a, a term life insurance for a relatively healthy person is ranges kind of fifty to a hundred dollars, say for a million dollars. Would you say that's about right? Um, yeah. And so you're looking close to eight hundred to a thousand dollars a month for a, a whole life policy. Is that sort of ballpark? Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you and people could pay uh, eight hundred to a thousand dollars a year, you know, for a term life insurance, if they get it early on and they're otherwise, you know, healthy and don't have many dependents and things like that. A lot of factors that go into that, but you could pay the same amount per year for a term policy. Uh, and those, unlike disability, the term policies are not real tricky. Like disability has lots and lots of variations on it, uh, that can make trying to figure out about disability really hard. Term is really easy. It's black and white. You're either alive or you're dead. Right? <laughs> it's like it either pays or it doesn't. So it's really right. easy. So there's a lot of companies that will do term, and they're all generally pretty safe. The disability is where it gets really, really tricky, and that's you know the big six and own occupation definitions and all that stuff. Okay, your final pitfall is buying the doctor house. Why is this a bad idea, and what should uh, new attendings do instead? Yeah. So. Generally, I would say the when you look at buying a house, that's generally a really good investment, right? Because we, we have a place to live. Um, it's a place you can call home. It's nice to settle in. Uh, it's a way for you to uh, have equity, which means like value, which is you know net worth. Um, so houses are great, but generally early on in our careers, we move around a lot and we don't know much about the new area or our partners or the job environment. And so a lot of early doctors will only stay at a job for a couple of years and then move. And so whenever we buy a new house, it takes about five to seven years to overcome all the money you have to pay whenever you close on the house. And so there's bank fees and realtor fees and all that. So it takes a while to recoup that. And if you're selling homes every two to three years, you'll never recoup that. And so it really becomes a losing investment. So that's, that's the first thing. But the other thing I think about and the reason why I say it's a mistake to buy the doctor house is because typically what a realtor is going to encourage you to do is to buy a house that they'll use two different rules of thumb. One would be uh, whatever your yearly salary would be. If you double that, your house should not be more than that money. 
or another way they'll say it is if let's say you're making, you're bringing home $10,000 a month well, your house note should be no more than 30%. So they'll say your house note should not be any more than $3,000 in that scenario. That's still a lot. I, most people in, in very conservative, you know, reasonable, uh, looking out for the doctor world would say about 14 to 20% is a much better rule of thumb than 30. I don't know if, if you've ever read the chapter in the book Freakonomics. That's about a, by a couple of economists. Um, but they have a chapter in there where they talk about the um, real estate market and realtors themselves and about how they are so incentivized uh, to sell the house oftentimes against the, the buyer and the seller's best wishes. So it's a very interesting chapter. But suffice it to say, the real estate market on the buying and selling side for, for a real estate agent is not the best uh, for us. And so they encourage you to get back houses uh, that sometimes will make you then house poor. Because every month, you're spending so much money on your super awesome doctor house, like all your friends have, that you can't pay off that high interest debt and you can't pay off those student loans, and you can't start saving for retirement. You can't do emergency fund or pay for your kids, um, you know, college funds or whatever. So you don't want your house to be such a draw off your check every month that you don't have the freedom to do what you want, and you don't have the freedom to save and pay off the stuff that's really, really uh, of much higher interest. Awesome. Okay, so just to wrap up part one of this discussion. Um, you know, how can we learn more? I know there are probably uh, residents and junior staff out there that are thinking, oh my God, I'm just so far behind. Mm -hmm. So what advice do you have for them? Where, where, where can we educate ourselves and what are some first steps? Yeah. So, you know, the whole financial sector can be pretty intimidating, but really unlike medicine where, you know, research has really made us much, much better doctors because we have all these medical breakthroughs. Research through and through the years of finance really hasn't made us better investors, right? If you want to study how to, to get rich, you don't study interest rate returns. You study greed, right? I mean, that's the way because really greed is the issue um, with us as human beings and, and particularly for us as physicians. So I would say, first of all, sort of be introspective, you know, look at ourselves and figure out what you really want and where you want to be down the road. But really, you know, self-educating is excellent. And there's a lot of good resources. And I, earlier I mentioned the White Coat Investor. I think that's an excellent resource. And he's on podcasts. He's got very easy to read books. And I would say just start educating somewhere, whether it's Audible, which is what I do. You know, I have a, a book per month that I get and it forces me to read something. And so as you, as you, like I said earlier, pass your boards, you get, you know, past these hurdles, then really, really start crunching on these other areas. And um, whether it's, you know, paper books, Audible, podcasts, just start somewhere. But there's a lot of very good ones and they, they reference each other. Uh, Facebook groups are some good ones, uh, but just start somewhere and just start making little changes because even something as simple as creating a budget uh, can really help you rein in some some spending um, on as you go in the future and your your future self will, will thank you a lot. Great. Yeah. And I just want to make a quick plug. You mentioned Audible. Something I came across this past year is Libby uh, and is all you need is a library card uh, or at least a library account. And you can get almost any audiobook, any book, as long if it's a new, you know, if it's brand new, maybe not. But so um, one book I you mentioned and I highly recommend is The Psychology of Money um, just came out this past year. And it really kind of breaks down a lot of what you talked about, about deciding kind of, you know, what is the goal of all of this and and, and making fight uh, smart financial decisions. So uh, yeah, check out Libby free app. 
And so, yeah. And uh, so, Dr. Mizell, thank you uh, for helping us with this. Uh, we're excited to have one more episode with you where we dive a little bit more into the details for those that want a little more information. Um, but uh, thank you for this uh, awesome episode. Happy to help. I appreciate you guys having me on and look forward to the next episode. Be sure to check out our website at www.behindthenife.org for more great content. You can also follow us on Twitter at Behind the Knife and Instagram at Behind the Knife Podcast. If you like what you hear, please take a minute to leave us a review. Content produced by Behind the Knife is intended for health professionals and is for educational purposes only. We do not diagnose, treat, or offer patient-specific advice. Thank you for listening. Until next time, dominate the day. Dominate the day.